on the back. Okay, let me say a word just before I talk about these individual things. As we're in Lent, and as we begin to approach Easter, um, we have designed a series of experiences, if you will, to help you just get a taste, a, a flavor of what what happened. Uh, that final week, that wonderful, that wonderful time, that terrible time when Jesus died for us. A lot went on that week. A whole lot of things happened. And so we have several things. Number one is this Friday we have a Seder dinner. If you've never been to one, I'd like to invite you to come. It is, it's worth it. If you wonder what Passover was all about, uh, it is rich in meaning. It was the primary way, one of the primary ways that they learned about who God is. Uh, they didn't have, uh, the Bible wasn't available to them. Um, the priests may have had a copy, but not the people. And so it was the practices where they actually learned about who God is. And the Seder dinner teaches us about what happened at Passover and why that was so important. And it prepared the disciples for Resurrection Sunday. So it's this Friday. You can sign up online. You can go out back and on the Welcome Center and sign up. You can call the office. You can call Judy or Mark or any of us if you want to go. And we already have a big crowd. So get your name in and come this Friday. Then if you look at the back of the bulletin, what you'll see is all next week, starting next Sunday, we have a series of events. Next Sunday is Palm Sunday. That's where Jesus came into Jerusalem. They waved their palms and laid them down and honored him as king. And then uh, by the end of the week, they crucified him. What happened? Why did they honor him as king and then turn around and crucify him? We're going to talk more about that. And then as we get into Holy Week, we're going to have a Monday, Thursday service, a Good Friday service. And those are the evenings where, if we look at the life of Christ, Monday, Thursday is where he met with the disciples that last night. And he talked to them about uh, his last words, what was important before he left. And uh, that's where we get uh, the core of our theology comes out of this evening. And then uh, Good Friday is a time when Jesus is now dead and the disciples are scattered. And so we've created events to help you get a sense of what happened this during this week and let you experience it a little bit. So I'd like to invite you to come. And then, of course, Resurrection Sunday is a week from this Sunday to come and be a part of this. All right. Today, I would like to start by praying. Um, I think most of you are aware of the pretty terrible flooding that's occurring in Nebraska. I'm sure you've read about it, and you're, you're aware of the tragedies in Mozambique, a country I go to and teach, um, and the people that have died there and all the suffering. And I think it was just stop and lift up those people. So let's pray. Father, we, we're very aware of um, the flooding, the devastation that's occurred and is still occurring. We're aware, Lord, of the tragedies in Mozambique with the cyclone coming through and the number of people are dying and uh, left without water and food. And Lord, um, it reminds us, um, it reminds us of our dependency on you. Lord, uh, um, I read daily that people all have an opinion on how to care for the earth and we think we have it figured out. Uh, these moments remind us that uh, we don't. These moments remind us that you are God and that we need you and that uh, this is your creation, not ours. So we lift up these people, Father, the believers and non-believers alike. We lift them up and, and ask that you would show them uh, grace, be merciful to them, and somehow reveal to them your glory, reveal to them who you are. 
reveal to them, Lord, that, uh, that you are a God who cares about them, a God who uh, watches over them. And thanks for watching over us. We're so very grateful. In your uh, son's name, amen. Okay, we're in a series, Holiness, a heart fully devoted to God. And today, we finally make it to Pentecost. All the things that we've been talking about, we've come a long ways when we started way back here and talked about the Mosaic Law, haven't we? We've come a long ways. And uh, we've made it through the cross a couple weeks ago, and then we are now at the Spirit. This is where all of history is headed. I love uh, Dr. Payne, Don Payne, last week. I love the way he expressed some of this when he talked about holiness, quite simply, is being in the presence of God. I love the image that he used when Moses goes up to the burning bush and God says, take your shoes off. You're standing on holy ground. What's the difference between this dirt and dirt over there? What's the difference? God's presence. That was it. God is present right here. That's the core basic definition of holiness is we now stand in God's presence. We are holy. We are holy. We're going to come back and look at that. He did an excellent job last week of kind of explaining it. Now remember where we've come. We've been freed from from slavery to sin. Um, And holiness has now been secured in Christ. We're going to talk more about that in Romans 8 today. We've now, it's now been secured. Our holiness has been secured in Christ. And yet we still have an obligation to live out this holiness that Christ has secured. How do we do that? How do we actually do that? And we're going to begin that journey today. Today we're going to talk about life in the Spirit. Now next week we're going to talk about what does it mean to walk by the Spirit. Those are two different things. We live in the presence of the Spirit, and therefore we walk by the Spirit. So today we're going to talk about that presence, God's presence. So, as we look at the journey, we have this contradiction that's kind of formed. One is, we've been declared holy for all time. Look at Hebrews 10. Uh, There's nobody back in the back. Okay, great. Hebrews 10.10. By the will of God, we have been declared holy once for all time. Okay? Once for all time. By the will of God. We have been declared holy once for all time, Hebrews 10.10. It's hard to believe, isn't it? I know you want to say, I don't feel very holy. Well, that's true because we've helped you kind of confuse things. Holiness is that declaration of God where you now live in His presence. That's what happened at Pentecost. That's what makes you holy. Just like the dirt, as you live in God's presence. Once that has happened, then you begin the long, patient journey of transformation and growing in maturity, spiritual maturity in particular. That's that journey from there on out. But the beginning point is that you now stand in God's presence, and you need to know that. So we have that declaration, and yet our thinking is still rooted in our sinful self. Remember, Paul argued that we have the ability to say no. Romans 6, you've been free from sin. Why do you keep sinning? Why? Sin is no longer your master. You're no longer a slave. He says that over and over and over again. So if that's the case, then why do you keep sinning? On one hand, we're holy. And on the other hand, we still have a propensity, a tendency to sin. Why is that? And, and what, how do you resolve that contradiction? And so as he moves into Romans 8, 
That's his answer to the dilemma. So we're going to spend some time in Romans 8 today, quite a bit. We're not going to read all of it. We don't have time to do that. But we're going to look at some key points to help you understand present reality and where you live today. But first, Romans 8 is a picture of the Christian life as it has always been intended to be by God. So I've been asking the question all along, when you hear the word holiness, I love the way Don said it last week, but do you, when you hear the word holiness, do you go, oh, really? More things to do. A perfection, a standard I can't possibly live up to. Is that what you think of holiness? Or do you think of holiness as an invitation? I love working with the pastors at the seminary. One of the things we talk about in a theology of preaching, are you this type of preacher? Or are you this type of preacher? And that, to me, captures all of my theology of preaching. Do you see holiness as this? Or do you see holiness as this? Holiness is all about God in His presence. He created us to live in His presence. That's what He has desired all along. That's why He loved standing with Adam and Eve in the garden. He made them for that. And that's what He longs for us. What the law did, remember, the law is good. The law... It revealed our sinfulness. The problem was never the law. What was the problem? What's the problem? Oh yeah, there it is. I saw a bunch of you go like that. There's the problem right here. The problem was never the law. We have an incredibly gracious God that gives us a law that is clear and easy to follow. Read the 613 commands. They're not complex at all. But back in that era, if you go back and look at the divination codes from all the nations, they are extremely complex. Whole books on trying to discern what you And our God said, no, here it is. Some simple commands, just follow them. The problem wasn't with the law. The problem wasn't here. And so by the time we get to Romans 8, we now are finally filling out the picture of what God intended for us all along that we couldn't do. So the law was very grateful, and we're grateful for the law because it exposed our need for a Savior and a Spirit. It exposed our need for God Himself. So, let me give you a couple of statistics about Romans 8. The word Spirit occurs 21 times in this chapter. 21 times. Now, that's in Romans 8. The prior seven chapters, it only occurs four times. So, bang! We jump into Romans 8, and we jump right into God's presence himself with his spirit. In contrast to that, in Romans 7, you have the laws mentioned, I don't know, 18 times, 17, 18, 19 times. And it's not mentioned in Romans 8 hardly at all. So Romans 7 is talking about the law and the impact of the law and what it did for us. It trapped us and exposed our sin so that we would turn to the Savior and enjoy the Spirit. Romans 8 now is the promised land we have arrived. We have the Spirit of God now. So you can see this drastic change between these two chapters. It seems clear to me that Paul is making the point that the Christian life is not one about, it's not about striving That's not it at all. We saw two weeks ago that all the knowledge in the world and all the effort in the world don't accomplish anything. That didn't solve the problem. The Old Testament is full of people that tried that. That was Paul's basic argument and basic lifestyle before he found Christ. As to the law, blameless, he said. He put 
all of his energy into obeying the law and he learned it was not good enough. All of the knowledge and all of the effort is not enough. And that's what Paul is arguing here. We cannot do it through our own strength. Rather, what he's going to argue is that it is one, our life is to be lived out through the guidance and energy of the Holy Spirit. You may not know it, but you live in God's presence all the time. You may not know it, but you can't do a single thing in Christ without the Spirit's presence. He is with you all the time. Good and bad. I had a young man once that uh, his particular struggle with sin was sleeping with other men's wives. And uh, then he came to know Christ and circled into my life. And we began that journey of trying to untangle that. That's never a good thing, by the way. Sleep with other men's wives. No good that comes out of that. But it was kind of an addiction. So I said, all right, I want you to do this. Next time you're in bed with another woman... I want you to picture Jesus either sitting on the bed or laying right there with you. He came back the next week. He goes, that was gross. (laughs) It disrupted the whole experience. But that's the reality of the world we live in. We live in God's presence. You can't do anything in Christ without the Spirit. Some of you come from traditions that have shied away from any word to do with Pentecostalism or the Charismatics because of maybe your experience. That's a tragedy because those are all very good biblical words. They have to do with life in the Spirit. And we would do well as a church to recapture some of that language Some of that language of how the Holy Spirit works with us. Because He is present with us right now. Right now. He's present. Just enjoying us. Guiding us. Teaching us. Shaping us. Creating impulses within your own heart. That's the Holy Spirit right now. This is why Pentecost is so vital in our theology. We have a tendency to stop with the cross. Now the cross is very important. Don't forget, that's the atonement. That's where sin was cleansed. That's what enabled us to experience a true exodus from sin. We're now free from slavery. We're no longer enslaved. But simply giving us freedom, it's just like the slaves out in the desert. Simply giving them the freedom is not the answer. That's not all the scripture is pointing to Pentecost. When they're freed, the temple is cleansed. That's what happened at the cross. We're given a picture of resurrection in Jesus. He leaves, sends the Spirit. The Spirit of God comes in and dwells us and lives within us. God's very presence lives within us now. In other words, just like the dirt, we stand in God's presence continuously. That's why we're holy. That's why we're holy. The problem is many of you just don't realize it. You just don't realize it. So we're going to look in Romans 8. And we're going to look at several key points. We're going to read several sections. So we're going to start with Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay, pause. Remember what he just ended up in Romans 7. 
What do I want to do? I can't do what I can't do. I want to do the wretched man that I am. Who's going to rescue me from this, this body of sin, this wretched body that it just can't do anything right? And he said, thanks be to God who sent his son Jesus. Now that Jesus has come into the picture, what does the picture look like now? So Romans 8 is a picture of reality. It's a picture. Everything I'm going to read to you today is a picture of what life is like right now, whether you realize it or not. It is still reality, whether you know it. What I want you to do is understand it and see it so you can enjoy it. So Romans 8. Based on what Christ done, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. That's Romans 6. You've been set free. You are no longer enslaved. And what did Paul say in Romans 6? Why do you keep sinning? You don't have to. Paul goes on. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. There's no condemnation because sin has been condemned. That's why I love going out with you and having coffees and all that. And and you you know my approach. No judgment, no condemnation. Oh, truth, yes. I don't mind talking about hard topics. I don't mind asking you hard questions. So how is it sleeping with another, another uh, person other than your spouse? Is that getting you what you want? How's that pornography thing going? Is that making you happy? I don't mind asking those hard questions. But no condemnation. Because there is no condemnation. There is no condemnation. This is the first point of what life is like in the Spirit. The very first point he makes. There is no condemnation. It has been dealt with at the cross. He goes on. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. You notice he doesn't say so that you could obey the law. Again, don't don't go back to effort. That's not it at all. He said it's been condemned so that the righteous requirement, passive, it's a passive voice, can be met in you. Who meets it? The Holy Spirit. That's it. What's the righteous requirement of the law? What is it? Jesus took the entire law and summarized it in two commands. Paul took those and summarized it in one. Love God, love people. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Paul took it and summarized it in one command, love one another. He doesn't talk about the first command. John in 1 John says, if you say you love God, but you hate your brother or sister, you're a liar. It's not true. It's not authentic love. And so what we learn from this is that we now have the capacity to love as God loves. That's what that means. That's what that means. The righteous requirement has been fulfilled in us by the Holy Spirit. That means now our natural predisposition is to begin to learn to love each other. That's what that means. That's why I love spending so much time with you. Because I just love you. Just love you. Okay. In verse 9, we're going to look at the second point. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. Okay, pause. Greek, just like English, has a way of communicating uh, probabilities. Okay. Uh, would you like to eat lunch today? Well, if it rains, uh, no. Okay, I don't know if it's going to rain or not. So that means that I don't know the probability. It's a possibility. 
And so we have the same type of stuff in English. They do it in Greek, and it's crystal clear how they do it in Greek. And so this particular type of condition is assuming that it's true. And the if is designed to ask you for you to ask the question, ooh, is that true? So let's read this again. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And you should go, well, does the Spirit live in us? And the Greek construction says, yes, it is a certainty. This is reality. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, and He does. That's another way of saying it. But he goes on. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. It's real simple. You either have the Spirit or you don't. You're either in Christ or you're not. But if Christ is in you, here we have it again, then you see, yes, He is. If you're a believer, it's a certainty. If Christ is in you, even though your body is subject to death, sorry folks, we're getting older. Anybody experience that? Gets a little tougher every, every year. If Christ is in you, even though your body is subject to death because of sin, it's aging. The Spirit gives life because of righteousness. This is one of my verses to be patient. As you age, yes, it gets harder. I creak a little bit more in the mornings. Sometimes I try to remember a word that I used to remember real easily, and I have to think about it another extra five seconds. Uh, But I tell you what, the internal person is being re-brought to life. And I enjoy the Lord more and more every year. Anybody experience that? He's telling us the truth, isn't he? I see those hands, smiles. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of the spirit who lives in you. You know what this is talking about? It's talking about resurrection. We will live again. It is certain. Now, do you actually believe that the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, is there any more powerful testimony in all of history? None. That that's the same Spirit that's living in you? Do you believe that? Or is it just kind of a a story in the past. It's in the Bible 2,000 years ago. One of my favorite scholars, who was a Pentecostal scholar, Greg Keener, New Testament guy. He's also a friend. I was reading in his one of his books this week and just happened to come across this. I love how the Lord ties something I'm reading to a sermon I'm about to give. Here's this. All Christians should read Scripture as people who are living in the biblical experience. Now think about that. All Christians should read Scripture as people who are living in the biblical experience. Not in terms of ancient culture, although that's important, but as people living by the same Spirit who guided God's people in Scripture. What happened to them happens to us. It's the same God. He goes on, this means that we are interested in biblical texts, not simply for what they teach us about ancient history or ideas, but because we expect to share the same kind of spiritual experience and relationship that they experienced. I try every Sunday to bring you back into the culture of that ancient world, not for a history lesson, 
That's not the reason. To continue to connect the dots with what we go through today. What they experience, we experience. It's the same spirit. So the question is, do you actually believe? Do you really believe that you live in God's presence? That's principle number two. Principle number one, there's no condemnation in Christ. Principle number two, we now live in God's presence. And the same spirit who raised this man from the dead is the same spirit that's working in you, very alive and active. Do you believe that? Do you believe it day to day, moment by moment? That's why I tell uh, parents of adult children, Somebody asked me recently, can you talk to anybody on the planet? Yep, anybody except four people. John, Cassie, Molly, and Drew. Those are my four children. It just doesn't work well as it had. Now I can talk to any of your kids, fine, and have a great time. But it's hard to talk to my own children. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Every one of you. So I've told several of you that have parents of adult children, just remember a few simple things. Number one. God loves your child far more deeply than you do. Number two, he's been more intimately involved in their life than you ever will or can be. We live in God's presence. Number three, he has far more experience with their struggles than you will ever have. Relax. Some of you moms have heard me say, just chill. Be a mom. Be a good mom. Talk to your kids. Lecture them. Do all the great things that moms are supposed to do. Dads, be a great dad. Don't let him go off the cliff. Stop him. But relax. You do far better loving your children and praying for them. Because God, who's at work in their life, is far more powerful than you and the one who lives in the world, Satan. He is quite capable of guiding them. Just relax. Okay. Romans 8, 14. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The Spirit who receive, you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. There it is. It doesn't make, this, this, the Spirit of God does no longer enslaves us. That's been dealt with. Romans 6. Rather, the Spirit you received brought, you about, brought about your adoption to sonship. We are now children of God. We live in His presence. We have been given our freedom. Galatians 5, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. He goes on, And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, and we are co-heirs with Christ. This is present reality. This is the world we live in right now. We don't have to wait to eternity for this. This is describing us at this very moment. If indeed we share in his sufferings. So point number three is that we are part of the family. That's what adoption is all about. We belong in the family. You know what that means? That means you're going to get out of the Christian life what you put into it. This is a shared experience right here. The Seder dinner is a shared experience. Monday, Thursday is a shared experience. Sunday morning worship is a shared experience. Good Friday is a shared experience. We are a family and we get together. If your family spends time together, you have one 
set of experiences. If they're fragmented, they never spend time together, you get a whole other set of experiences. All the way growing up, we had a, just a few simple rules with our kids. In matter of the age, we had to have one meal a day and we're together as a family. You get to pick it, but you're going to be together for one meal because we are a family and we're sharing an experience. That means you get out of church what you put into it. You come to church once a month, well, then they expect to only get once a month out of it. You come to church when the doors open and you're with other believers and expect to get more out of it. I told the parents recently of the teenagers, we had a parent meeting, and I said, you get your family, you get your kids uh, 100 hours a week. We get them for one or two on a good week. Don't expect us to be saviors. We can't possibly begin to overturn what you've taught them. That's not even a possibility. You want your children to experience the most they can get out of church, then get him, get them here. The good news about Christ is you get to decide. You want to go skiing? Go skiing. You want to go hiking? Go hiking. That's up to you. But don't expect us to give you more than what we can give you. Maybe those are hard words, but they're true words. If you come once a month, that's all you're going to get. You come and enjoy us regularly, you're going to get a lot more. Because we are, and that's principle number three, we are now part of the family. That's what that says. Okay, I'm not going to read any more in Romans, uh, so don't worry about putting up any more verses. You know the rest of this stuff. We know that in all things, God works for the good. You know that. What shall we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? He goes on, it's God who justifies, then who condemns? No one can condemn. No one. There's no one left to, to condemn you. The slave master called sin has been de- defeated. There's no one left standing that can bring condemnation to you. That's why he starts by saying there is no condemnation. In all things, we are more than conquerors. For I am convinced, and here's how he concludes this passage, this chapter. I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels, demons, present, future, any powers, height, depth, nor anything else in all of creation can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. No one. No one can condemn us. No one. You get to decide what type of life you're going to live. You get to decide what kind of family you're going to raise. That's your choice. You get to decide what type of parent you're going to be to your adult children. You get to decide what type of grandparent you're going to be. The more you put into it, the more you get out of it. It's very simple. You get to decide. You live in God's very presence. Do you believe that? Right now, we're standing in God's presence. Do you believe that? That will change how you think about life. That's what holiness is. Is living in God's presence. You are there. Whether you like it or not. You are there whether you sin. Or whether you obey. Whether you cry. Whether you rejoice. You are standing in God's presence. All the time. This is the reality of the world that we live in today. This is it. Next week we're going to begin the journey of asking... What does it mean to walk by the Spirit then? If I'm with God and I'm in His presence...
all the time. What does that mean? How do we live that life? The beginning point is the awareness that you can no longer escape. As David said in Psalm 139, where can I flee from your presence? It's not even possible. You get to choose what type of life you live. I'm a preacher who believes in this. An invitation rather than this. Father, thank you for sending us your son. We're so very grateful. Thank you for knowing us because you created us, for loving us, for inviting us into that deeper walk of holiness and cultivating within us a heart fully devoted to you. Thank you for that. Help us, Lord, as we are on our journeys, each of us and together as a church, to continue to develop that type of wonderful, wonderful journey. In your son's name we pray. Amen.